We start tonight with breaking news out of the New York Times. Special counsel Jack Smith has interviewed Donald Trump's son-in-law and former top White House aide Jared Kushner. The Times reports that in an interview last month, the special counsel focused on whether Trump had privately acknowledged that he had lost the 2020 election. In other words, when Trump claimed the election was rigged, did he know he was lying? Did Trump have corrupt intent when he allegedly tried to subvert the election? Also today, Jack Smith's senior assistant special counsel, a lawyer named Tom Windham, was spotted leaving the D.C. federal courthouse for the second time this week. Mr. Wyndham is one of the top prosecutors working on special counsel Smith's January 6th probe. That was a role he played even before Jack Smith was appointed special counsel. And this afternoon, Mr. Wyndham was back in court, indicating that the grand jury is meeting. So with all of these new details out of the special counsel's office, it really does seem like Jack Smith might be getting that much closer to potentially indicting Trump over his actions in and around January 6th. And the clock is ticking. Fulton County, Georgia DA Fonnie Willis just had two grand juries impaneled on Tuesday. One of those two grand juries is expected to be asked whether or not Willis should indict Trump for his alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 election in her state. And the first of those grand juries began hearing cases today. Now, federal prosecutors do not exactly love when parallel local investigations outpace their own. They want their evidence and their theory of the case to be the first version that the public hears. So D.A. Willis poses a problem for special counsel Smith. D.A. Willis has signaled that she anticipates announcing an indictment potentially as early as July 31st. That gives special counsel Smith 11 business days to make his own announcement, assuming he wants to make it first. And that is not the only calendar that Jack Smith has to worry about. There has been endless speculation about what the 2024 presidential calendar will mean for Smith's prosecutorial decisions. And today, we finally heard about the matter from the man himself. Earlier this week, in Jack Smith's other case against Trump, for Trump's alleged mishandling of classified documents down at Mar-a-Lago, Team Trump asked the judge to postpone the trial in that case until after the 2024 election. Well, today, Jack Smith's team responded, saying Team Trump and their arguments had no basis in law or fact, and that the complications of a presidential candidate's trial were actually reasons to start the process sooner rather than later. Hmm. One wonders if that might apply to a certain other federal Trump investigation as well. That is all to say that there are a number of reasons why it looks like Jack Smith is going to indict Trump and soon, like in the next 11 business days soon. What exactly could that indictment look like? Luckily, we have two handy potential roadmaps here. Number one, we have the other criminal indictment Mr. Smith has already filed against former President Trump, the charges he brought against him in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. And number two, we have this, this thing. A group of seven highly respected former prosecutors and defense attorneys and prominent lawyers and administration officials put together a very comprehensive model prosecution laying out what they think the charges against Trump are likely to be. 
Joining us now is Danya Perry, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York and one of the authors of this very weighty model prosecution. And David Aaron, a former federal prosecutor with the Justice Department's National Security Division, which handles things like the mishandling of classified documents. Danya, David, I could not think of two better people to talk to about all of this tonight. And Dave, let me start with you first in terms of the inferences that we're making based on Jack Smith's position in and around Mar-a-Lago. Is it fair to look at that as a roadmap? You know, in some ways it is. He, he, he clearly <laughs> some ways, okay. a little bit of a lawyerly response, but it, he, he clearly looked for a streamlined case uh, yeah. in, in the Mar-a-Lago case. And uh, they focused very narrowly. Um, they didn't include a bunch of extra defendants and they seem to have streamlined their evidence. That may not be the case. It may not even be possible in the January 6th case. Um, just the nature of that case probably involves a lot more people, a lot more witnesses. And frankly, there's a, a bigger story to tell. I want to get to the actual potential charges as written about here. But before I do that, Dave, just purely in terms of the timing, the response today from the special counsel's office saying a presidential election isn't a reason to slow down a potential trial. It's reason to speed it up. One would think that that logic applies to any potential criminal indictments in January 6th, too, right? Of course. Uh, you know, if, if uh, there's a public interest in resolving these issues uh, quickly before the election, um, that applies at le- with at least equal force to the case that's yet to come. All right. So, Danya, w- when you when you thought about all, all of these varying factors, I mean, let's first start with the timing. What do you think special counsel Smith thinks about, is concerned about when he thinks about the 2024 presidential election? Well, I think you had it exactly right in your introductory remarks. There's an election coming up. He wants to get ahead of the cycle. He made that very clear in his filing today in the Mar-a-Lago case. And he is also mindful of the Fulton County DA's investigation. And as you point out, federal prosecutors usually win those turf wars. And so we were looking at the calendar, too, and mindful of the clock. This is why we kind of worked you know, night and day to get this model prosecution memo out because I strongly suspect, along with my co-authors, based on many, many decades of collective experience, that this indictment, if it comes, will be coming in the next, as you say, probably 11 business days. And so I think all that is top of mind for special counsel Smith and his team of intrepid prosecutors. Danya, let's talk about what is outlined in this this magnum opus. There are three charges that that you talk about explicitly in here. One, conspiracy to defraud the United States. That's for the fake elector scheme. Two, obstruction of an official proceeding. That's trying uh, to stop Mike Pence from certifying the election on January 6th. And three, this is probably the most explosive just because it's been bandied about a lot and not everybody's on the same page about this. Inciting an insurrection and or giving aid or comfort to insurrectionists. Can you talk a little bit about that last charge and why it was included in here? Because that from a layman's perspective, seems like the most complicated to charge. Absolutely. And that's why we kind of had to include it, because if ever there was a case for bringing this very little used statute, this is it. And as we point out in our white paper, it has seldom been used since the Civil War. And I agree with David and his remarks This should be streamlined as the other indictment is, but it's going to be very difficult for the prosecutors to do that, given the defendant here, the wealth of information, the the possibility of so many defendants. And so 
they could keep it, I think, to probably two charges. But if they really want to bring the most apt case, and it is what we call in the law sui generis, it's kind of stands on its own. It's unique by its very nature. And so if ever there were a case for bringing this such a charge, as I said, I think this is it. And if you really analyze, as we spent, as, as you show on, on the table there, you know, many, many pages, given the, the, the facts, the law, the precedent, this actually fits. And it's probably, you know, it's one of the very few cases in history that does. And so, you know, I, I think it's something that certainly the prosecutors must have spent a lot of time, spilled a lot of ink discussing. And that will, to me, if there is an indictment, that will be the kind of the wild card if they decide to bring one under under this, you know, Civil War era um, statute. Yeah. I, I mean, Dave, what did you think about? I mean, what do you think? What do you think about inciting insurrection? But I mean, honestly, it is hard to re- retell the events of what happened that day, the evidence that the public has been presented with without using the phrase phrase inciting an insurrection, describing the actions of the former president. You're absolutely right. And most of the time, what I would say is it's one thing to say that colloquially. Yeah. But what how does the law define these terms? And we're dealing with statutes that are old. Um, they're from when people spoke differently. And there's no definition written into the statute of what is an insurrection and how is it different from a riot and how is it different from a, a revolution? Um, I, I think that the uh, the pros memo, uh, the draft pros memo really speaks the to the draft well. prosecution memo exactly. for those not exactly. in law school. Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> I, I think it does a good job of explaining how those terms would apply. And it really is the, the best interpretation available of those terms. Um, so, you know, it, it's a pretty good case made there that this qualifies as an insurrection. That's something that would have to be litigated. I think there will be interesting issues around um, proof of the then president's mental state. Well, and that's what I want to get to also with you, Danya. We know that Jared Kushner has gone in and testified about whether the president had corrupt intent, whether he knew he was lying in and around his claims that the election was stolen. There are other people that have testified, inner members of the inner members of the inner circle in the Trump administration. How much does it matter that the prosecutors can show he had corrupt intent? Well, as we analyzed in in the prosecution memo, if the prosecutor brings a very narrow charge, in some way it matters not at all. If the prosecution can show that Mr. Trump was aware, for example, that the slate of electoral certificates that was submitted to Congress was false. That could be enough in and of itself. If he knew that there was no legal authority whatsoever to put pressure on Vice President Pence um, to essentially overturn the will of the voters, that could be enough in and of itself. Uh, in and of itself. If he willfully incited this crowd to an insurrection, that could be enough. So that's why that that's kind of the narrow case. But as a matter of jury appeal, as as a matter of telling a narrative arc, it, it of course would be helpful to be able to tell the jury, to persuade the jury that Mr. Trump at the time knew that, in fact, the election was not stolen and that he had actually lost the election. And from what we've heard from reporting, you know, up until today, there are many people who will say, yes, he was aware. Now, Mr. Kushner may have said the opposite, and there are good strategy reasons for the prosecution to call 
Jared Kushner into the grand jury to tell that story, even if it doesn't actually support the prosecution. It, it can draw the sting. It can help them to anticipate what the defenses will be. So there are other reasons. We don't actually know, of course, what he testified to. But according to reporting, he testified that, no, in fact, the president thought he had legitimately won. I still think even if there are witnesses who will tell that, ultimately, it will not prevail for the reasons I said. There's a narrow case that doesn't require proof that he knew the mm -hmm. election you know, was or was not stolen. But also, you know, it's it's there are enough people telling him there was no proof that it was. And so that's more of an insanity plea than it is actually a good faith defense, in, well, in my view and the view of my co-authors. You know what, David, it reminds me of the Bedminster tape. Mm. that the, the prosecution did not charge Trump on, right? They did not charge him on dissemination. But just having the tape of Trump acknowledging that the classified information was not his to divulge and also potentially waving around classified documents in front of people with no security clearance, in the court of public opinion, that matters, right? That's, that is the kind of evidence that the public needs to understand just how wrong the behavior was. And I wonder if it's sort of the same thing in terms of corrupt intent. Is it is it to just explain to the public he knew what he was doing was wrong and that's why we're going to trial with this? Or is it more meaningful than that? Do you, do you feel that, that that actually needs to be proven in court as part of a potential indictment? I, I think it's both. Um, I think that when, is also a very lawyerly answer. <laughs> I apologize. It's it, OK. It, it doesn't go away. Um, you know, the the Bedminster tape and uh, and, and the incitement to riot or incitement to insurrection uh, statements, they, they have something else in common, which is the defense there is some defense of hyperbole mm -hmm. or, or boasting. And so when I think about proving the state of mind, it's not so much whether the then president knew that he had lost the election. It's was he willfully inciting an insurrection or was he just talking? Was he just talking the way that he always talks? Um, was he just, you know, blustering? Hmm. And so that would be an interesting line. Um, and I think that there's a lot of kind of collateral evidence, evidence surrounding him about what people were saying to him and what he knew was going on at the time that would really feed into that proof. Dave, do you think that Jack Smith could be making room for further prosecutions down the line at the state level? I mean, we know he just brought Brad Raffensperger in recently, the former, uh, the, the current Georgia Secretary of State. We know as of today, the Washington Post is reporting that Arizona is escalating its own probe into election activities in and around the 2020 election. It looks like they may have their own Fonnie Willis level investigation. This, right. There's a lot happening at the state level, both at the from the feds and from state level AGs. Is it possible that we could see a situation where President Trump, former President Trump, is charged and then the investigations and the indictments continue on after that? Yes. I mean, I started my career at the Manhattan DA's office. And as much as people like to joke about state and federal or federal and local, there is sometimes cooperation. And if uh, something can't proceed in one system, um, the authorities will cooperate and let it proceed in the other. Uh, the limiting factor would be really the appetite for bringing yet another one of these cases. Yeah, well, that's the huge million-dollar question that needs to get resolved in the next 11 business days. All right. <laughs> Tanya Berry and David Aaron, thank you guys thank both you. for your time and great wisdom this evening. We have a lot more to come tonight. What it might mean to have a presidential nominee standing trial on multiple criminal indictments while he is running for president. My former travel buddies from Showtime's The Circus will be here on set, all of them, to talk about that very weird split screen right after the break. And later this hour, Screen Actors Guild President Fran Drescher joins me as 160,000 TV and film actors prepare to go on strike tonight. 
after failing to reach a deal with Hollywood Studios. Stay with us. How they plead poverty that they're losing money left and right when giving hundreds of millions of dollars to their CEOs. It is disgusting. Shame on them. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. I've known him for 22 years. And when I was doing these cases in New Jersey and I would put political figures in jail, he would say to me, I could never do that. I could never go to jail. And I'm telling you, no matter what he says, no matter how he's bragging and, and going on and on about him not being afraid, he goes to bed every night thinking about the sound of that jail cell door climbing, closing behind him. There are two things looming over the 2024 campaign, Donald Trump and the multiple criminal charges against him. He remains the front runner in the Republican field, and yet there is a pretty decent chance that he will have to appear in court as part of two federal cases at the same time that he campaigns for the presidency. So what does that mean for the already circus-like atmosphere of the 2024 campaign? Well, I have just the people to ask. <laughs> Joining us now are the co-hosts and executive producers of Showtime's The Circus, my old traveling companions, dear friends, John Heilman, Jennifer Palmieri, and Mark McKinnon. This is the most number of people we have ever had on this Bring set. Bring on the clowns. Exactly. <laughs> I think they're already here. Yes. In a way, yes. Um, John, I'll start with you. Speaking of clowns. Yeah. Yeah. What I mean, what does it mean? First of all, you have studied Trump, the, the political creature, for many moons now. And I wonder what you think the specter of potential multiple federal criminal indictments does to him as a candidate. Well, I, 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 the thing you said in the lead in is the truest thing, like hovering over the race here are these two things, Donald Trump and the indictments. Like, I have to say, I've covered presidential campaigns since 1992. Mm-hmm. And like, I've never been more less interested in what's going on in the Republicans running around the country. It's like, it's a ridiculous. It's a kabuki dance. It's not, it's nothing to do with anything. The only story in Republican politics is Trump. Yeah. He's like, I mean, he's, he's so much the dominant figure that when people say, oh, you got to go to the steak fry and see Mike Pence. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, it's just, it's not, it's not relevant to, to, to who's going to be the Republican nominee. The disposition of the Republican nomination is, is really about Republican voters and Donald Trump, yeah. what, the legal system and Donald Trump. The Donald Trump of it all is everything. The rest of these people are, to, to coin the phrase already used, clowns. Compared to Kim, he's has so much power in the party. He's transformed the party, as we've said for years, but really it's evident now, into this huge cult of personality. And it's the MAGA party. It's not the Republican party anymore. And where the legal system gets him and when, 
all of that. But the rest of these guys, right, people running around, I say with all due respect, there's some serious people in the race. There's some less than serious people in the race. Yeah. There's a lot of them now. But it's all sort of like, really? Like, I'm going to go pay attention to that? Yeah. It just seems irrelevant. Well, I mean, I guess you're not going to the steak fry uh, with Mike Pence. <laughs> but, I mean, I do have to ask, MCAT, the idea that Trump is going to be wounded by these indictments. I mean, maybe with a certain subset of the electorate, but as a candidate, I feel like you're going to be, you guys specifically are going to be hearing about this at every rally that he holds because he does draw strength from controversy. Well, and it's exactly what he wants. He wants to be the dominant piece of attention for all of us and all the media. That's what really matters to him. That's why he ran yeah. in the first place. Was not, he didn't think he was going to be elected president. He just knew it was the biggest stage. It was the hottest spotlight in the world. And so he's doing it again. And the, the fact is that he is going to absorb all of that. But he is a twice indicted, mm-hmm. first time in 100 years uh, to get, not be reelected and lose the House <laughs> and lose the Senate. That hasn't happened since Grover Cleveland. Uh, and uh, and two indictments now, but there could be a third and there could be a fourth. And the question is, if nothing's happened after two, why would anything happen after four? But at a certain point, voters, you know, do smarten up and say, can this guy win a general election? And the answer is going to be no, he can't. You think that you say that definitively? Well, I, th- I think that after at a certain point, yes, I think that they're going to say this guy can't win. And then he starts. That's when the bleeding starts. Yeah. I, I mean, there there's going to be enough polls between now and then to say, yeah, he's cleaning up in the primary, but he's going to get crushed in the general. Listen, the, I don't yeah. understand if, if the, I mean, the, why does no Republican take the bait? No fellow Re- Republican candidate. Other take, than Chris Christie. Other than Chris Christie, who's polling at like four percent right now. Yeah, but he was at one percent when he started. Not that he's going <laughs> to win, but like it shows you that there's an appetite in the Republican primary for somebody who will. You're saying there's a chance. Do we have time to play this incredible sound from Tim Scott on Piers Morgan? Do we? Can we play it? Oh, come on, let's play it. Let's play it. Please, let's. Okay. To win the nomination, you're going to knock out Donald Trump. How are you going to do that? Well, everyone watching the show tonight can go to votetimscott.com, learn more about who I am. Are you a better human being than Donald Trump? I think we all have intrinsic value in the eyes of God. You've got some people who are mad that I don't love Trump 90 you know, 100 percent of the time. I don't love my husband 100 percent of the time. I mean, okay, oh my God, I do. I love my husband 100 percent of the time. And bravo to you. Also, weird to make an illusion but you between vote for president. <laughs> like Donald Trump and your husband. But I mean, teed up. Here is a chance for you to say something yeah, critical of Donald mean, Trump and go to, to timscott.com. You have to be Donald Trump. Like that, that is what this. That is what the Republican primary is about. And I saw Politico had a story today that said donors are now worried that DeSantis doesn't have the juice. Um, and so well, they're donors going, really sharp. They're not the sharpest. And now, in the they're going, and so now they're taking a look at Tim Scott. Like, but it's people. the most fundamental thing in politics. You define the differences between you and yeah. your opponent. If there aren't any people say, well, I'll take the original. There's no yeah. Difference. yeah. You know, like, and no one's looking, you know, that the whole theory of like these donors is that some is that people want an alternative to Trump. There is no there is no push to have an alternative to Trump. He's like has 50 percent of 51 percent of the of the primary vote right now. I want you want to challenge, challenge I want to challenge Tim Scott's uh, that we all have uh, intrinsic <laughs> value in the eyes of the Lord. For one thing, I'm, speak for yourself, buddy. Um, yeah, I, but here's the thing that's so hard about this. We on in, the, in this world. Well, you know, you got to take on Trump. You got to beat up Trump. I just, you know, the, the loyalty to him in large parts of the Republican base is so intense. I, I find myself intrigued. John Ellis, um, who's a very smart man about, about Republican politics, keeps saying, you got to figure out a way to hug Trump while you shiv him. You can't, like, beating him up 
is not what the Republican base wants to see. Right. People are the people who vote in Republican nominating politics. Mm-hmm. They don't want to see someone say Donald Trump's terrible. Donald Trump's this. Donald Trump's that. They want to see someone who says there was what was used to be thought of as the gold watch strategy. Hey, buddy, you made America great again. Now hang out in Florida. That's what DeSantis like, is kind of, kind of push, trying kind of push to him do. Off. But it's you know DeSantis is so obviously but the pro- so so obviously not ready for prime time that that it's kind of like he's not there it's it's just very hard they're trying to find their way towards it so it's like they're they can't do they have to do some contrast but just beating the hell out of trump is not going to be the way that you inure yourself to the republican nominee republican nominee basically likes donald trump we don't understand it yes we all think it's all bonkers it's clear they like him they like him can i ask one question to you jennifer palmieri what does Joe Biden do if hmm. Donald Trump is facing multiple federal criminal indictments? He's said nothing thus far. He's going to have to say something at some point. Right? I don't know. I don't know that he's ever going to have to say anything. I mean, I think that he just runs his I think he just runs his race. I mean, he's the like election, the, the plan that, the, you know, he's. The, yeah. Why would what, what what would he say? He would say he, what would he say? He would say there's a dangerous agenda that he that he followed the MAGA agenda. He, you know, disrupted our democracy. He doesn't respect our democracy. He doesn't have to go to the indictments. I don't see why he would really ever have to be in a position where he has to comment in a real way on the indictments. That's, that's an interesting and important caveat in a real way. <laughs> well, <laughs> so, well, because the whole argument well, his, is this guy is not, this yeah. guy is chaos. I mean, and was, the yeah. indictments are another manifestation of the chaos. That was the rationale for his candidacy in the first place, yeah. to yeah. restore the soul of America. He's that's got, all he's got to say. He's got a great People contrast. Okay, uh, obviously we have more to talk about. John Hellman. <laughs> Jennifer Palmieri, Mark McKinnon, stay. Keep your tushes in the seat uh, because we're going to talk much more about 2024 and the Republican war on woke, the craziness that is presently unfolding right now on Capitol Hill as House Speaker Kevin McCarthy once again bends to the culture warriors in his party's right wing. Stay with us. We're coming back after the commercial break. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. These are some of the things that were yelled at my sixth grader this year at West Wilson Middle School. You're going to hell. My parents say I can't talk to you because you're gay. Fag. I bet if I kissed you, you'd like it. You don't deserve to live. My parents say you're a pervert, and if I beat you up, they wouldn't care. You should kill yourself. Die, faggot. My 13-year-old. Where do you think these kids are hearing it from? That is Lindsay Patrick Wright. 
Her child is in the sixth grade in Tennessee, which is a state that has passed more anti-LGBT laws in the last eight years than any other state in America. That question Ms. Patrick Wright is asking at the end, where do you think these kids are hearing it from, is a direct indictment of the Republican Party. Anti-gay, anti-trans culture wars are being fought by Republican lawmakers in schools and in doctor's office, offices and even in the U.S. military. Right now, at this very moment, Congress is in the middle of trying to pass the annual defense budget. In the process of trying to get this thing passed, Speaker Kevin McCarthy has been cowed by the right flank of his party, which appears to be treating the bill like a culture war Christmas tree, trying to hang dozens of amendments on the bill before passing it. The amendments would prevent the military from providing gender-affirming care to service members. It would block service members from being reimbursed for abortion care, and it would eliminate military programs that promote diversity, equity, and inclusion. The list goes on. Still with me on this big night of news are the co-hosts of Showtime's The Circus, John Heilman, Jen Palmieri, and Mark McKinnon. I mean, Mark, the Republican Party that you once worked for is changed a lot. And really, it's hard to articulate what the priorities are at this stage in the game other than the culture war that all of the candidates seeking higher office. Completely unrecognizable to me. It's it's so contrary to the message that attracted people like me across the bridge back in the in the, in the 1990s about compassionate conservatism. Yeah, I don't see an ounce of compassion anywhere. And I think the problem is going to be that the Republicans caught the car on this and that it is now clear that the party has been completely controlled by the fringes and that the fringes are controlling the the the, the dialogue and the agenda and they're just going to take it right off the cliff. And, and listen, Kansas was a great example on abortion, right? That's like the most, yeah. one of the most conservative places in the country, yeah. obviously. And the abortion amendment that was passed there surprised everybody. But if it passed there, I mean, that's, 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 that should be the memo to Republicans. And they just haven't gotten it. Well, I mean, tomorrow at a summit in Iowa, two of the, you know, six leading presidential candidates are going to be in the same afternoon session as the governor signing a six-week abortion ban into law. I mean, and yet this is what Republicans are doing to other Republicans. And Ron DeSantis, um, Ron DeSantis tries to act like he did not. Yes. Yeah. Like, we know we I know it happened at 11 o'clock at night, but you signed the six week abortion ban. It is like it is what you are for. And, you know, when we went uh, when we covered the Glenn Youngkin race in 2021 mm-hmm. and you spent time yep. in uh, Fairfax County, I think. Right. Loudoun with, County, Loudoun County. Yeah. Loudoun County with a uh, with a woman that was very concerned about critical race theory, mom. Those issues seemed like they were going to dominate in 2022, but then what happened? Yeah, it's taken over the entire Republican Party. Taken over the Republican, entire Republican Party, and then Dobbs happened. Yeah, and that's, I mean, look, there, <laughs> there, are, culture, there are cultural issues and there are cultural issues. You know, right. One of the things about, you know, just to be blunt about it, you know, and a critical race theory is, you know, there's a, a very different cast to that issue because of the fact that it's not 52% of the population is not African-American. It's like you, a pair of Republicans have run race, racist and race freighted campaigns for a long time. They can, you can do that because the math works in a lot of cases. You can, you can, yeah, they have profited from it over the years. I'm not approving of it. I'm saying they've yeah. won a lot of elections. Well, and that also way. those numbers are changing they're, they're in terms changing, of field. They, are, they, are, they are changing, but they are still not what this issue, what changed was the introduction of an issue where the vast majority of America, where, where, where more than half the country, have more than half the voters are women and way more than half the country objected to what happened in Dobbs. But you still see, not just at this thing in Iowa, today on the House floor, there's an amendment that's put up to take, basically effectively ban abortions in the military. Yeah. And 
all of the all of the New York Republicans who got elected that swung the House toward Republicans. There's five or six purple Biden districts here that went Republican in 2022, and they all voted for that for that amendment. It's not going to go anywhere. The Senate's going to kill it. It's but on the record, man, though. Every yeah. Democrat in the every Democrat in the House is going. You know. Bring it on. Yeah. Women that, signed up, women that signed up to serve in the military denied a basic health care right that we've had for 50 years. Unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. I do wonder, as we talk about Ron DeSantis, who shrewdly uh, signed his six-week abortion ban at midnight with no media in the room. There's two words that don't usually be used together all that often. <laughs> Ron, Ron DeSantis, DeSantis three words, and but. shrewdly. But, you know, Shrew, maybe. we are hearing that donors are less than... Um, enamored of Governor DeSantis and are looking for alternatives. Rupert Murdoch reportedly wants Glenn Youngkin to throw his hat in the ring. And I do wonder, in terms of culture warriors, do you see a meaningful difference in the way that, for example, Glenn Youngkin has handled this versus Ron DeSantis? Has he done a better job? More fleece. (laughs) That is true. Yeah. Well, and listen, I mean, a lot of it is just style and demeanor. I mean, Ron DeSantis, as uh, our friend Alex Castellano said, it's not it's not that voters don't like him. He doesn't like voters is the problem. Yeah. He, he's the worst retail politician I've ever seen. I was thinking about presidents that we've known. They're, they love to campaign. They love people, right? Bush, Clinton, Obama. Yeah. Biden. Yeah. Uh, this guy just doesn't like people. And Yunkin does. I mean, he's he's kind of a sunny, you know, throwback Reagan style Republican ish. He dips his toes in the yeah. culture war stuff. And my my thinking is that it's not it, it's like being pregnant. You can't be halfway there. Like you're either in a, in the culture war and talking about critical yeah, race the theory, anti-trans, the, anti-gay, all that stuff, or you're not. And the once you war. are, it's a they're if the, you get into that arms race, then you're yeah. That's then it. you have they're, to go they're in the, the briar patch. Yeah. They are but in the, the briar patch. The person, the Republican candidate who talks the least about woke issues. Donald Trump. I know. I know. Yes. Also not in Iowa right now. He doesn't have to prove his bona fides. He does people. not. He's, he's, he's asking the same question. It's focused on federal criminal indictments. And that's the circus in which we live. Let's go do a show. Summer. Guys, I miss you. Come back all the time, please. I know you're so busy, but John Heilman, Jen Palmieri, Mark McKinnon, my friends, my former colleagues, thank you for this little reunion. I adore all of you and your wisdom. And Are thoughts. we invited back tomorrow? Uh, yes, Cocktails every hour. Time. Cocktails next time. The Showtime. The Showtime. The Circus on Showtime returns this fall. Watch it. Coming up. Fran Drescher, beloved actor, comedian, and president of the Screen Actors Guild, joins me to discuss the massive strike that is threatening to cripple Hollywood. Stay with us. This is a moment of history that is a moment of truth. If we don't stand tall right now, we are all going to be in trouble. We are all going to be in jeopardy. This is a very big deal, and it weighed heavy on us. But at some point, you have to say, no, we're not going to take this anymore. What are we doing? Moving around furniture on the Titanic? It's crazy. So the jig is up, AMPTP. We stand tall. You have to wake up and smell the coffee. We are labor and we stand tall. That was the president of the Screen Actors Guild, actor Fran Drescher, this afternoon. She was announcing the union's unanimous decision to strike after four weeks of negotiations with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers after those negotiations failed to reach a deal on a new contract. Comcast, the corporation that owns MSNBC's parent company, NBC Universal, is one of the entertainment companies represented by that alliance. At midnight Pacific time this evening, 
The nearly 160,000 actors represented by the union will join members of the Writers Guild of America who have been striking for the past 72 days for their own contract. This collective action will be the first industry-wide Hollywood shutdown in nearly 63 years. Joining us now is Fran Drescher, president of SAG-AFTRA. Fran, Ms. Drescher, thank you so much for making time this evening. I know that you have a lot going on. I'll get right to it. Um, Two weeks ago, you were quoted as saying the union was having extremely productive negotiations with the studios. Can you tell us what transpired between then and now that is leading SAG to strike? Well, I think that we were dealing with a lot of peripheral, um, you know, issues that seemed to be going well. And so I guess naively, I figured it would continue to go that way. But as we got closer to the core issues, uh, it seemed like we were either being stonewalled or were further and further apart from coming into any kind of a meeting of the minds. And that uh, came as a a, a real disappointment to me. I didn't expect it. And uh, I really feel profoundly saddened that we got to this point. I wasn't really, I mean, we did everything we could to avert a strike, including extend by 12 days in an unprecedented amount of time. And we really had to convince the membership that in earnest, we thought that, w- that we would be able to carve deeper inroads. And that was why uh, we felt that if we could only extend a little longer, uh, that maybe we could avert a strike. But in fact, they didn't come to the table all that often. They canceled a lot of meetings. I thought maybe they were duking it out behind closed doors and they were actually going to come back with something of substance that was meaningful. And boy, did I get a surprise because we got bupkis, basically. And, you know, I think we were duped maybe to allow for more promotion of summer movies before we, you know, struck. Wow. Can we just talk a little bit about the sticking points? Because I know the the union is uh, asking for better pay. They want residuals on streaming. And there are some concerns about artificial intelligence. Uh, Can you talk at all about what is most troublesome to you about the latest bid from from the studios? Well, uh, definitely everything that you've mentioned. I mean, artificial intelligence is a threat to workers uh, around the world. What we are doing here, um, the eyes of the world are watching. We happen to be able to get a lot of interest because of uh, the celebrity component of our labor force. But that doesn't mean that what's happening to us is unique. And everybody is watching to see what happens because artificial intelligence and the pursuit of greed by big business is systematically cutting labor out of their livelihoods. And we see that happening uh, since the introduction of streaming, as well as all different kinds of things that AI and digital has imposed on our industry. Basically, the entire business model has changed, and there's still 
just thinking that we're going to be satisfied with incremental changes from a contract that was forged in 1960, and it no longer applies. It's a completely different game. And so that became uh, a mounting problem. And when you talk about what the journeyman actor, the journeyman performers, that is the majority of our members who are just working class people trying to get jobs to feed their family and to pay their rent. And this is the people that we are really going to the mat for because they are getting hurt the worst and getting marginalized uh, to an extent where it cannot be tolerated anymore. So, you know, it's, it's imperative that we don't settle for a proposal that is a minimum, which essentially ends up paying those people uh, less than what we made in 2020 in real money. And that's what we're supposed to be satisfied now until through 2026. It's insanity. And those aren't the only things. You know, the old contract was based off of uh, shows like The Nanny that had great longevity and a long tail of revenue. And that was the name of the game. And everybody above the line, up and down the ladder, uh, prospered from it. But now with streaming, it's not like that anymore. It's in a vacuum. You're in a box. You're walled in. And there's no tale of revenue to follow. And it's not even based off of what it used to be based off, which was eyeballs and ad dollars. Now it's based off of subscriptions. So you don't even get uh, the amount of episodes that we used to get. I used to do 28 episodes. Yeah. Now you're lucky. If you get 10, eight, Every, everything. And how do you I, make a living on that? I, I, I hear you on the changing nature of the industry. I mean, I, it bears mentioning that the Writers Guild is also striking for many of the same reasons, the disruption in the industry. The studios often say this disruption in the industry is making them rethink their revenue streams. I mean, how do you see your goals and the writer's goals uh dovetailing. Do you think that, that your, your strike is going to help them achieve their ends? I know that the, um, there's been some reporting, at least from one studio executive who said the studios are determined to quote, break the writer's guild of America. Are you guys going to be there to support them? I mean, how do you, are you working hand in fist? Let me just say that for anybody to say that shows the arrogance and complete disregard and disrespect for a community that contributes so much to the industry upon which they prosper. It's just unconscionable, the complete disrespect uh, to the people that contribute so much, and we're experiencing it too. I thought they would come to the table and really want to make a deal, but that was not the case being stonewalled and being faced with a kind of resistance that's almost irrational. I mean, it's mm. not just about money. There are things that they want to have our background performers work one day for and get scanned for AI, and then they own 
the likeness of the person digitally, and they could use them over and over again. What is going to happen to that hardworking background person? They're going to be out of business. This is the kind of thing that's happening all over the world. The issues that are being brought up are so novel, and yet, in some ways... The struggle is the same as it ever was. Fran Drescher, the president of SAG-AFTRA, thank you so much for your time tonight, Ms. Drescher. We sincerely appreciate it. I appreciate it. it. And you know what? That's why we have unions. It is. Because people don't do the right thing. It is why we have have organized labor in this country. Thanks for joining us this evening. Appreciate it. We will be right back. It has been a big night of news here, and that is our show for this evening.